0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, November 13th. What possibly could happen today? X-ray. Today, back in the day, November 13th, 1851, the Denny Party settled in Alki Point, Washington. Apparently proper Chinook pronunciation is Alki, but no residents of the Washington area say it that way these days. Arthur Denny led a wagon party that set out from Cherry Grove, Illinois, April 10, 1851. Eight people, including Denny's family and his wife's sister. By September 2nd, the party added two people of their ranks, including Denny's newborn son, and had reached Portland. Two from the party went north to scout possibilities for new settlements and were guided to Alki Point joined by several new members the rest of the party boarded the schooner exact on november 5th from portland to washington after moving around a bit over the next few years the denny's along with the settler families eventually decided on elliott bay this would form the nucleus of what would become seattle today back in the day november 13th 1956 the u.s supreme court declared alabama's bus segregation laws unconstitutional we now know this history front of the bus reserved for white people, back of the bus reserved for black people. If the front filled up, the black passengers were made to stand. In 1955, Rosa Parks, you've heard of her, secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP, refused to move to the back of the bus for a white passenger. She was arrested, fined the equivalent of $134 in today's money. That act of defiance spurred the local chapter of the NAACP to start the Montgomery bus boycott, led by Martin Luther King Jr., Early demands for the boycott were meant to strike a compromise with the city. Having a fixed line, dividing passengers by race, but seat passengers on a first-come, first-served basis and hire black drivers. The strike was effective, caused significant economic disruption. About three-quarters of bus passengers in Montgomery were black. Black commuters created carpools, taxi drivers charged a fare of a bus ride. Some people even rode mules or buggies to avoid taking the bus. Meanwhile, the White Citizens Council, that doesn't sound good, by the way, grew in number and in agitation. King's House was firebombed, as well as the house of another prominent NAACP leader and four black churches. As pressure on the city increased from national attention, a federal district court ruled that segregation laws were unconstitutional. State appealed. Eventually, it was brought to the Supreme Court, where, today, back in the day, November 13, 1956, the ruling was upheld. The boycott officially ended on December 20th of that year, lasted a total of 381 days. Today we'll start with your Quick 6 News headlines and we'll have Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, back with reflections on the election. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown.
1: Portland Street Response has announced its first hire program manager Robin Burick. Burke is a licensed therapist and has worked in city government, specifically in Tulsa's Human Rights Compassion Committee and Jail Sales Tax Oversight Committee, She has also served on the Meals on Wheels board. The Portland Street Response is the city of Portland's new non-police crisis response program, colloquially known as PSR. PSR is working to implement a system which dispatches medics and crisis workers instead of police officers. Black Lives Matters protesters have been asking the city of Portland for a system like this, at least since protests began in May. Many are concerned that police do not have the proper training to handle crisis intervention. The program is currently in its pilot phase and is in the process of building its team. PSR is within Commissioner Joanne Hardesty's portfolio.
0: Your daily dose of coronavirus data on Thursday, OHA reported 1,122 new confirmed cases and four new coronavirus-related deaths. Multnomah and eight other Oregon counties are under a two-week pause. A handful of Oregon hospitals are postponing elective surgeries in preparation of increased hospitalizations. Oregon Health Sciences University, Kaiser Permanente Northwest, and Legacy Health are limiting those elective surgeries to make room for the potential new patients. Last spring, Governor Kate Brown ordered hospitals to do this, but this time around, it's voluntary. Providence and Peace Health, the other two major Oregon hospitals, have not indicated if they're going to make the same move. The average case rate is now 817 a day. Hospitalizations have nearly doubled in the past two weeks, and the number of hospitalized patients hit 290 on Wednesday.
1: Portland homes have hit the highest average sale price at $516,500. Generally, October marks a decrease in selling prices. A combination of a growing population, owners being unwilling to sell, and wildfires that have destroyed 4,000 Oregon homes has contributed to the seller's market in Portland. One of the biggest factors, though, is a seller's fear of not being able to find another home. Currently, the average time a house is on the market before receiving an offer is at 38 days. For perspective, the average selling price for a Seattle home is $715,000. In Salem, it's $350,000. And in Bend, it's at $561,000. Meanwhile, a homeless man in Bend died Tuesday night due to a temperature drop. David Melvin Savory, age 57, died outside of a Rite Aid on Southeast 3rd Street. That night, temperatures hit 33 degrees with winds at 20 miles per hour. At the time, Savory was on the wait list for several local shelters, but Bend does not currently have a warming shelter. A warming shelter location was secured only two weeks ago, while community members typically complain about their placements. The new shelter will be running in early December and will accommodate 50 to 70 people. Local homeless service providers are worried Savory's death will not be the only one this year. That night, a neighbor brought Savory food and blankets before he went to sleep.
0: The Deschutes National Forest is prohibiting campfires, camping, chalking, and defecation in its roughly 700 caves. The new rules aim to protect the delicate ecosystem and ensure fond memories for visitors. The caves have been subject to graffiti, pooping, and garbage for the last several years, and cleaning a cave is a hefty task. Don't go pooping in the cave. Neil Marchington, chairman of the High Desert Grotto, said it took five days to clean a 1,600-foot lava tube in 2019. That's one name for it. The new rules can be found on the USDA website, and they apply to all of the Deschutes National Forest Caves.
1: Good news. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the state-sponsored whale carcass explosion on the Oregon coast. It's an infamous piece of Oregon's history and also one of the most mind-boggling decisions the state has made. In 1970, a 45-foot, 8-ton sperm whale carcass washed up on the Oregon coast in Florence. At the time, the coast was managed by the State Highway Division, and they decided the best way to get rid of the odorous body was to explode it with a half-ton of dynamite. The concept was similar to the removal process of a boulder. Upon detonation, Larry Bacon, a reporter with the Register Guard at the time, said, All of a sudden, there was this 100-foot geyser of blood, blubber, and sand going up into the sky. It was like a blubber snowstorm, with tiny particles of blubber floating down after the big chunks. Last year, the site became a landmark called Exploding Whale Memorial Park.
0: And in some political news, Oregon Governor Kate Brown's Chief of Staff, Nick Blosser, has quit to join the team of Joe Biden, president-elect of the United States. He's served as Brown's chief of staff since 2017, and he's going to be the state lead in intergovernmental affairs in the office of the Biden-Kamala Harris transition. Don't know yet whether Blosser will come back to Kate Brown's team after the transition is over. And Brown announced that Deputy Chief of Staff Gina Zedgelik will replace Blosser.
1: And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Alex Zielinski, news editor of the Portland Mercury, joins Jefferson Smith to break down the recent races that shaped the future of Portland City Hall. Here are Alex and Jefferson.
0: Alex, it seems like a little bit has happened since we last spoke.
2: Yeah, it's been, I don't know, it's just been maybe two weeks, but a lot has, a lot has gone down. I'm still kind of reeling from it.
0: It, what were the, what are your biggest reactions? I know there's more than the election, but that's something that you and I haven't had a chance to debrief at all yeah. Uh And before that, how are you doing, by the way, how are you doing as a human being?
2: <laughs> oh, I'm doing fine. Um, I feel like this is the first, it's almost a slow news week in a great way, That and I haven't had one in a while. I mean, there's still news. There's still a lot of important stuff going on, but compared to previous weeks, I feel like I finally have had a second to take a, uh, a breath. But, uh, but yeah, the election definitely is the, the thing still kind of um, on my mind and has taken up a lot of the past few weeks. Um, I, you know, it was, it's interesting getting the local um, results while still waiting for the national results and kind of being in limbo for the pat you know, for the five days or whatever that was. It seemed like a very long time. Um but I was thankful to to have some local um some insight in the local kind of the future of the uh local government in the meantime um i was surprised uh by i was surprised by how um big a win uh mingus maps had on the city commission
0: Ooh, um, okay see so i see more
2: yeah yeah i mean i i don't have the number off the top of my head but it was a pretty big he had a pretty big lead in the you know 12, 15 um, percentage points ahead of Chloe Udaly, who's the incumbent. And, you know, there were rumblings and there were polls that showed that that was something, um, you know, that he had a had a lead on Udaly. But it was surprising to see how large that was, especially compared to um, another race that was kind of Unclear how uh, how close or far apart the two competitors would be. The mayor's race, um, which was which was pretty uh, close, you know, with with the circumstances at hand, um, it was interesting to see. I think a lot of people have pointed this out, but the majority of um, voters who participated in the in the mayor's race voted uh, not for the winner. Uh, voted uh, either for uh, Sarah Iannarone um, or a write-in candidate uh, as opposed to the mayor who, who won, but he won with, um, you know, the vote was kind of split between, in some ways, between Iannarone and, and write-ins. And so, you know, it's interesting talking about, yes, he, he won a second term. And I think that's, um, there's a lot of potential and, it, you know, interesting stuff he could get done in the next four years. But with that, he has a reminder that there's still a lot of people who did not support him um, in this race and, and yeah
0: let's dwell on, let's dwell on both of these let's let's go in the order yeah. that you took yeah megus maps i'm looking at the at least the best results i've got here Megas maps won by about 40,000 votes just a little uh, 40,700 votes uh, and which translates to about 12 points uh, maybe 12 and a half points so yeah wasn't uh, wasn't a super close race Uh, but Chloe, you daily didn't get, you know, she had two thirds of primary voters, not voting for her, uh, which were you surprised more by the margins of results in the mayor's race or the margins of results in the city council race?
2: That's a good question. I think, you know, I think with the city council race, I was kind of expecting, I was expecting the pieces to fall in the mayor's race, pretty similar to, to how they did, um, and and I wasn't I was I wasn't going to be surprised if Mingus Maps won, um, but I was, and maybe that's just me like being so plugged into city council. Um, I was surprised that there wasn't more of a turnout for Chloe Daly. I mean, that being said, you mentioned the primary race and how um, uh, Udaley still got, you know, just a third of the vote and and the other person, the other kind of contender in that race, former mayor Sam Adams, um, backed, uh, Mingus maps uh, in this race. And so it kind of makes sense that folks who are following him, uh, would be directing their votes towards Chloe daily. And so, or again, towards Mingus maps. Um, so, you know, neither are incredibly surprising, but that one, that gap for me, uh, just stood out a bit more, especially not seeing it really narrow at all after the first, um, the first, uh, you know, n- numbers coming in at, at 8 p.m. on election night. Um, but, you know, it says something about kind of where this city uh, and where voters are wanting to to put their, um, our, our feeling just to kind of maybe about the like political climate. I mean, it definitely, both of these votes we're talking about shifted or at least maintain and then shift uh, the council further away from kind of the further progressive lefty city council uh, that we have had for a little bit. Um, And we were, you know, potentially headed towards expanding. Uh, And so, you know, obviously most folks on city council, it's, it's um, nonpartisan, but it's pretty very progressive democratic um, uh, panel of, of politicians, but um it's kind of where they lean on city issues that shows, you know, where they fall in that spectrum. and and with this election, we've kind of decidedly to fallen towards more moderate and centrist um, panel of of
0: commissioners. It is uh, when we look at the analysis, we look at the reasons, uh, there have been two powerful hypotheses that have and they're not mutually exclusive. but one is that the, tenor of the race turned. Jim Redden of the Portland Tribune, his line was that the mayor's race was decided the moment that the historical society was attacked and that Sarah Enron, who was more uh, aligned more closely with the protest energy, uh, was uh, that, that, that hurt her and Ted Wheeler was more ambivalent uh, with respect to protest energy. it helped him. The other hypothesis was, uh, and again, not mutually exclusive, is that what was dispositive was the half a million dollar uh, independent expenditure campaign organized by John Isaacs of the Portland Business Alliance uh, to attack Sarah Ann blister with mail pieces, etc., drive her support down, either to build up Ted Wheeler's support or to push people to the 13% of voters, right? It was race defi- decided by 20,000 votes with 46,000, 45,000 write-in votes, uh, either to push Ionarone voters to Wheeler or just push Ionarone voters away from Ionarone uh, to the comforting confines of a third-party candidate or, you know, a, a write-in candidate rather. Uh, do you have, feel free to respond or push back to either of those theories uh, do you have additional analysis or analysis in the context of those ideas?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think those both are um, very uh, smart kind of <laughs> uh, you know perspectives as to why this went this way. I think it's interesting with the historical society. The um, I think that was the Columbus Day or you know Indigenous Peoples Days. Uh, day of Rage protest. Um, I, you know, it's hard to say if that was a, a tipping point. I know that. Um, I think the way that both, I think that really helped in framing the um, argument from, you know, the pack that you mentioned that supported Ted Wheeler in in framing the, the conversation that you know Sarah Annarone supports protester violence. Um, which they had been framing kind of before that even happened. And so that kind of fell right into their lap as that n- narrative because she, um, uh, you know, I think she, she did condemn uh, the, the fact that damaging, you know, national or uh, local kind of institutions and museums is not right, but gave some space for, you know, trying to explain maybe why that was happening and kind of what was going on. And, and yeah, and Ted Wheeler on the other side um, gave no breathing room for kind of uh, nuance. In that he, he was very strong in saying, you know, this is inappropriate, and did a you know scramble together a pretty great, um, an organized press conference maybe the day after that had kind of all the right folks um, at the podium speaking. And so um, I can't I can see that being kind of maybe a climactic point, but I, I do think that that. His response to protests versus Sarah's response to protests in general um, in the past few months leading up to the election just kind of kept adding to what folks who are not that clued in or watching kind of what's happening on the ground every night. A lot of us, I mean, I, I don't as much anymore either, but that they um, shifted more towards Ted Wheeler's perspective of like, okay, we've had enough of this destroying things now um that this is someone who will guide us out of this mess whatever that looks like and sarah aneron's pitch was more like yes this is a mess but also it's something we need to kind of confront and we're not going to return to some tidy um maybe some tidy environment without having those conversations um which is something i mean to be fair ted wheeler says he's ready to have he's ready to talk to folks and have like uncomfortable conversations, I think is his term. Um, but, yeah, I think um, it really was that division around kind of quote-unquote violence, whether that's property destruction or uh, protesters throwing things at cops that seemed to really um, divide how voters pitch their their votes for mayor. And that was kind of what those... Um, you know, the mailers, the anti-Sara May- mailers were, were focused on in those political campaigns or focused on. It was that and her, um, her use of Twitter, <laughs> which uh, was an interesting alignment with kind of criticisms against the you know, White Trump. House, uses right. I
0: want to say Alex Linsky is wonderful to hear your voice again. Uh, I hope we will do this not only next week, but maybe we can even look for sort of a double episode where we talk a little bit greater length, a debrief. We had all of that run up, and it does seem like there's some more debriefing to do, but I've got to say thank you to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks to Alex for joining the local. Huge thanks to our production team. Executive editor, Will Romy, Supporting editors and writers, Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington-Brem, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Jalisa Ringering, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiassi. Big thanks to co-executive producer, Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. Also, big thanks to original journalism and research by the London Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID-19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, the Oregon Encyclopedia, Portland Business Journal, KGW, Wikipedia, The Willamette Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPB, KTU, the Oregonian Statesman Journal, News Partners, Mercury, Street Roots, Eater, and Portland Tribune. Thank you for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. Tell a friend. And thank you, Democracy on Monday.
3: Get one, get one. Okay. cameras stopped rolling immediately after the blast, the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival as huge chunks of whale blubber fell everywhere. Pieces of meat passed high over our heads while others were falling at our feet. The dunes were rapidly evacuated as spectators escaped both the falling debris and the overwhelming smell. A parked car over a quarter of a mile from the blast site was the target of one large chunk. The passenger compartment literally smashed. Fortunately, no human was hit as badly as the car. However, everyone on the scene was covered with small particles of dead whale. As for the success of the effort, well, the seagulls who were supposed to clean things up were nowhere in sight, either scared away by the explosion or kept away by the smell. That didn't really matter. The remaining chunks were of such a size that no respectable seagull would attempt to tackle anyway. As darkness began to set in, the highway crews were back on the beach burying the remains, including a large piece of the carcass which never left the blast site. It might be concluded that should a whale ever wash ashore in Lane County again, those in charge will not only remember what to do, they'll certainly remember what not to do.